If you're visiting for the first time or are here for the first time after a long time being away, you may not know we're at the beginning of a journey. It's about a year-long journey where we are looking at and listening to the words of Jesus himself. How shall we live? The best way to know how to live is to listen exactly and obey exactly what Jesus told us to do. We started a few weeks ago with these, um, the transfiguration as a basis for that because remember what the Father said. He said, this is my son whom I love, and do what? Do what, congregation? Listen to him. Why listen to him? Because then we discovered that he and the Father are one, and to listen to the Father is to hear the word, to listen to the Son is to listen to the words of the Father as he directs us. And then the first message, and the message that runs through, in fact, the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. He said what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is near. In other words, turn away from the world and follow God. And then we heard him say how to do that. If you're going to turn away from the world and follow God, then it's very simple. Follow me. Follow me and you will enter the kingdom. If you follow me, you will follow the narrow way, because I am the way, the truth, and the life. And when you follow me, you will follow the narrow road and you will enter the small gate. But my way is broad in this sense. I come for everyone and I love everyone and I embrace anyone who will follow me. I'm not a narrow-minded legalist. I don't want you simply to be following rules. I want you to follow me. And then we talked last week about how to do that. We are not relieved of the responsibility today in the new covenant of keeping the commandments. He very, very clearly told the rich young ruler, then keep the commandments because I do so and I command you to do so. We're going to look at that story again today from a different gospel. We looked at it from Matthew the 19th chapter last week. We're going to be looking at Luke the 18th chapter with a slightly different emphasis. And it leads us to another observation about how to follow Jesus. And that is, before we choose to follow Him, we must be totally sold out. There's a bit of an irony here because this event occurred apparently just before the triumphal entry, not long before that. And those people, as we know, who proclaim Hosanna in the highest, here is the coming king, the king that is like David. Praise God in the highest. They were sold out to him, apparently, at the beginning of the week. And before the end of the week, they sold him out. By the end of the week, one of his closest disciples sold him out for a few pieces of silver. What does it mean to be totally sold out? Well, I'm going to begin with a bit of a different story. After Jesus had entered Jerusalem, he was at the temple. And you will remember the story. It's found in Mark, the 13th chapter. It's also found in Luke's gospel. And he's sitting there watching in the court of the women and looking at the treasury. And he sees many people walking by and throwing in large amounts of money. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into it. And many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came, and she put in two 
copper coins worth only a penny. And so Jesus called his disciples to him and he said to them, truly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all of these other contributors into the treasury. For you see, they gave out of their surplus, but she, out of her extreme poverty, put in all she owned. She put in all she had to live on. Now there is a picture of being completely sold out. I think that one of the lessons that Jesus is teaching here is what it means to be sold out. He, in one sense, was commending her on her devotion to God because she was sold out. But there are a couple of other lessons from that story, and I'm not going to preach a whole sermon on it, but I think that it's important for us to see what else Jesus might have been saying. You see, he's also contrasting her pure motive to serve God with those rich people that did it for what? They did it to make a show. It's pretty obvious. There's another point. When you look at it in context, both in Mark's gospel and in Luke's gospel, it comes right after he has rebuked the scribes and before he proclaims that the temple is going to be destroyed. I think another thing that, and many scholars would agree, that one of the things that Jesus is doing here is he is placing an indictment upon the whole corrupt system that has made religion into a system of profit and show. For he has just said that the scribes are egocentric show-offs who do religious things only for other people to see them and to see how important they are. And yet at the same time, they devour widows' homes. It's not ironic then that Jesus commends the widow after this. And immediately after this, his disciples are amazed at the splendor, the magnificence of the temple. And he warns, you see this temple that is there for the prophet of the rich priests who have corrupted the system off the backs of the poor like this widow who have given everything that she has, this temple will be destroyed. For you see, I am the true temple of God. You see what he was saying, I think, there to his disciples is, yes, you need to be sold out, but you need to be careful to whom you sell out and to what you sell out. And so we return to the story of the rich young ruler, which occurred just before his triumphal entry today, to see what it means to be sold out. Last week, we learned from the story from Matthew's gospel that the law is still important because the law convicts us of sin and it teaches us of our need for Christ. But we do not keep the law in order to earn eternal life. Eternal life is nothing less than following Jesus. Following him, he saves us and he leads us into the kingdom. But we follow God's commandments still. We follow his moral commandments, not the ritual law which he has fulfilled, but we follow his commandments because he did so. And because he tells us to do so as well. And we do it also for our own good. Because just as he gave the law to Israel, the Ten Commandments to Israel, for their own good, to guide them in the way of prosperity in life, they still do that for us. We saw last week that the rich young ruler, whether or not we really explicitly said it then, was probably a product of this corrupt system about which we have spoken this morning. You see, he misunderstood what salvation was about. He would be saved, he thought, by keeping all of the commandments, legalism. He would perfectly accomplish all of these things, and through his legalistic obedience, he would earn his way into the kingdom of God. And by the way, he was rich. 
So it was obvious if he was rich that God had blessed him, that he was good in the sight of God, and this was proof of it. So when he comes to Jesus, what were his motives? He wanted to do that, remember, just one more thing. That one more thing that would push him over the edge and make him perfect. I think what he was really trying to do was to justify himself before this rabbi. To justify himself, and he comes to him and he says, what shall I do then to inherit eternal life? Knowing that he had done everything that was possible. And expecting Jesus to compliment him and say, good, my son, you have done well. And to affirm him in his perfection. And to be praised like these scribes and the Pharisees of the synagogues who tried to keep a legalistic code. And like these Sadducees that run this splendid system in the temple. That he would be praised for his righteousness because he was religiously sold out, you see. The question is, what does it really mean to be sold out? Let's stand for the reading of God's word from Luke, the 18th chapter. Beginning in verse number 18, a ruler questioned him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he, that is the rich young ruler, said, All these things I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and he said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, these things are impossible with people, but they are possible with God. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's have a seat. You see, one thing the ruler still lacked, and Jesus indicts him. He doesn't praise him. There is an indictment that comes. And the word, when he says lacks, it actually means forsaken. It it doesn't mean something that's just missing, but something that has consciously been omitted. It doesn't mean something that's just insufficient. It means that he's missing the most essential thing. After all, James, in the first chapter says that when we go through trials and tribulation, you see, we are made complete. And then James uses this very verb here. Failing, missing, nothing, nothing omitted. You see, everything that is essential is there. You are complete. It's not just that the essential thing is absent, but further than that, it means that as he looks at this rich man, he says, you're destitute. Because James also uses this same verb when he talks about those who are poor. It actually means to lack everything that is essential for life and to be destitute. You see, Jesus is quite blunt with this young man. You have failed. Full stop. You have omitted the most important thing. And you know what? You're not rich 
In fact, you are poverty-stricken. This must have shocked the rich young ruler. Because you see, he thinks he's on the verge of perfection. He just needs that one more thing that's going to push him over the edge. You see, the problem is not a shortcoming in works. That's not it at all, as we said last week. You see, at first, it seems from the story that Jesus might be suggesting that there is one more thing. You see, there's one thing you lack. One more thing, something extra beyond the law that's going to push him over. But you know, it's interesting. Jesus never explicitly identifies what that one thing is. He doesn't do that. And as Jesus often does, he taught him by giving him an example and calling him to action. You stood, and instead of saying, here's the thing you lack, do you want it? He then does what? He gives the remedy to clarify the problem. You see, the real problem is threefold, I think. The ruler has, in fact, not kept the law, number one. Number two, the ruler is blind. He's blind to his own identity, who he really is. And then finally, the ruler has lacked what is the essential thing. Take a look at those three problems. You see, he hasn't really kept the law. You remember that Jesus has given most of the commandments of the second table of the law. And then in Matthew's gospel, he sums it up by saying that you're to love your neighbor as yourself. But remember, there was one that he omitted in the list, and that is do not covet. And now it's when Jesus tells him what his real shortcoming is. You see, that's his problem. He has fallen short. He's greedy. He's covetous. It's all about riches. You see, he has not kept the law at all. The ruler's also blind to his own identity. He thinks he's wealthy. He thinks that's his essential identity. You see, his wealth gives him security. His wealth gives him comfort. His wealth is who he is. He is the rich young ruler. And I'm sure his position, wherever it is, whether it's in the government or in the synagogue, he takes great comfort in that, and probably he's there because he's rich. But the fact of the matter is, his riches cannot save him. You see, there's an, there's an irony about this identity here. He's standing before the Son of God through whom everything was made, and all of the riches that exist in this world were created through this Messiah that stands in front of him. And yet he doesn't realize that the wealth that he has is because of the man that is standing in front of him. There's another irony. He doesn't realize that, in fact, he's not rich, but that he's destitute. It reminds us of what Jesus said as he prophesied to the churches in Revelation. You know, Laodicea thought it was wealthy in human terms, but Jesus says, you're poor in my eyes. In Revelation, the third chapter, you say, I am rich and I've become wealthy and I have need of nothing, but you do not know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. On the other hand, Smyrna. Smyrna was poor in human wealth, in human terms, but Smyrna, ironically, was rich in God's eyes. In the second chapter, in the letter to Smyrna, that is Izmir, he said, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you know what? You indeed are rich. You see, the rich young ruler, and seeing his identity being in wealth was simply claiming an identity based on fool's gold that rusts and fades away. There was a third problem, and that was that the ruler lacked what was really essential. 
what was most important. He would not let go of his wealth in order to follow Jesus. And of course, we know that that's the treasure. He depended on earthly riches instead of relying on Jesus. You see, he was destitute in the currency that really matters. He was destitute in the money that really matters. What is the currency of heaven? You see, the gift is the grace of God. The gift is the treasure in heaven that has been reserved for us by Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. But what is the currency that we pay? You cannot buy eternal life. No, but there is a currency that we pay. And what is the currency of heaven? It is faith. It is trust. It's not wealth. Peter tells us about the relationship between those two things, between faith, which is valuable, and genuine wealth. The proof of your faith, he says, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may it be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, that is the currency that really matters. And the rich young ruler, we will find out, did not have that faith. And so Jesus provides the remedy, doesn't he? He says, sell everything that you possess, all that you possess, and do what? Distribute it to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven, and then come and follow me. You see, the ultimate goal in this is to do what? What is salvation? We said it last week. The goal, the purpose, and the object of salvation is Jesus. Follow me. This is what he had said to his disciples earlier. That is what it boils down to. He actually says, first of all, come. The word is not a verb. It's an adverb. It's it's a a kind of imperative adverb. It's sort of like, you know, in Shakespeare, it always used to bother me. I didn't read a lot of Shakespeare. I read about as much as they made me do in in, uh, English literature. But in Macbeth, he will, Ross says to Macduff, I will hither. And I say, you will what hither? Well, the adverb, you see, is the verb. In The Merchant of Venice, Portia says to the Duke, I must away. Where's the verb? It is in a way. You see, there is an adverbial imperative here. Here, right here, come to me and then follow me. Accompany me along the way. And it's a present imperative. That means don't just come, but continue being with me along the way. Come here. Come alongside with me. And join me in the journey of life. Mark, in his account of this, which we will not cover, we did Matthew last week and Luke this week. We're not going to do Mark next week. We're going to move on. But Mark inserts here the risk of discipleship. Mark adds that Jesus not only said, come and then follow me, but he also says, take up your cross. Take up your cross and follow me. You see, the prerequisite to this is single-minded devotion, being sold out. And I see a couple of principles in in this text. There's the principle of discipleship, and there's a principle of service. The first of these principles is obvious. It's costly, the costly discipleship principle. You see, nothing can stand between you and me if you're going to follow me. I want your wholehearted commitment. Surrender your all to me in order to follow. And we sing it, don't we? All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I what? Freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. It's surrendering all. There's also the kingdom service principle. And we know that Jesus has said this already in the Sermon on the Mount. 
No person can serve what? Two masters. You either love the one and hate the other, or you despise the one and you're devoted to the other. You see, you've got to serve one or the other in kingdom service. In Luke, the ninth chapter, Jesus put it a different way, and I mentioned it last week. Nobody, no farmer, having put his hand to the plow then, who looks over his shoulder is worthy of the kingdom. Why? You look over your shoulder when you're plowing, and you don't keep your eye on the aiming point in front of you. You plow a what? A crooked furrow. And serving in the kingdom of God is not for crooks. It's for people that follow Jesus. Oh, yes, he invites crooks to be redeemed and repent, but then he sets them straight on the path of righteousness. So the kingdom service principle is that we must be single-mindedly devoted and focused on Christ. You see, Jesus' motive here is not to be judgmental. Uh, it, It was a loving and redemptive challenge that Jesus gave to him. You know, when you look at Mark's account, after the uh, young man says, you know, well, all of these things I've done, you know, he's full of himself. And it says that Jesus looks at him, and what does Mark say? Jesus looks at him, and he loves him. You see, this is about Jesus loving us. When he chastises us, when he rebukes us, when he disciplines us, it's all about his love. It's all about bringing, him, bringing us back into line with who he is and his will. You see, Jesus' challenge provides the remedy. Sell all you possess. And, and the verb is the kind of verb that means do it once and for all time. Go and sell all you have once and for all. And he doesn't say just give away your possessions. He could have said take your possessions and, and give them to the poor. But the problem with that is if one gives away possessions to somebody... They might later go back and try to reclaim them because the deal has not been permanently sealed. No, mm, uh, that's not what he says here. He says to do what? Sell it. Sell it and get money for it. And when you do it, then the possessions are gone. The deal is settled, you see. So do it once and for all. Luke stresses here that he is to sell everything all of his possessions, to be sold out. Now, Matthew doesn't emphasize that so much. Matthew says, sell your possessions, and the implication would be, we think that he means all, but sell your possessions, it's not emphatically and absolute in Matthew. And Mark says, sell whatever you have. Well, that could mean just whatever you have with you. But Luke is very clear that Jesus' intention was for him to sell all of his possessions. And Jesus had already told his disciples this. It's not just the rich young ruler. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. You know, we're thinking about the rich young ruler. Well, I'm not like him. But he said it to all of his disciples. You see, a man came to him uh, when he was on the, the Sermon on the Mount, rather. What did he say? He said that we're not to worry. And in Luke's account of a snippet of the Sermon on the Mount... When we're told to rely fully on God, this is what Jesus said to all of those that listen to him. Not just the 12, but all of those that are listening to his sermon. He says, sell your possessions and, and give to the poor. Make yourself money belts that don't wear out with unfailing treasures. Those treasures will be in heaven where no thief comes near, no moth destroys. For you see where your treasure is, what? Your heart is there also. So you hear that 
coming out of the Matthew Sermon on the Mount. So he says this to all of his disciples. He says to all of them to sell their possessions. And then he says, distribute it to the poor. Once again, do this once and for all. Once for all time. You see, Luke goes beyond Matthew and Mark here. They say, give to the poor. Well, you know, there are a lot of people that give to charities. You see it every day in the paper, online. People, great benefactors have given some great gift to some charity. They do it for what? They do it for a reward. They do it most, a lot of times, to be recognized. Not always. But there is some kind of reward there, recognition. Jesus tells us when we give, to do what? Not let your one hand know what the other hand is doing. Do it in secret. Also, too, when you give to a charity, once again, you, in a lump sum, you might be able to go and somehow, sort of like Corban that Jesus talked about earlier, lay claim to it during your lifetime, and it doesn't become the charity's possession until you die. You see, there are all kinds of conditions and restrictions that could be then placed upon it if you give, quote, to charity. But Jesus doesn't say that here in Luke. He says, do what? Go and distribute it. Give it, all of your money, away to the poor. It's the same verb that is used by him when he feeds the 5,000, or in Matthew's account of what he did in feeding the 5,000. He did what? He broke the bread and he distributed it to the poor. There's no way it can be reclaimed then. In other words, Luke is reminding us that Jesus is telling the young, the young man to liquidate all of his assets. There's an irony here. He's looking at this rich man and he's saying, you who are rich in worldly goods are to give to those who are poor in spirit. Hmm. He should help those who are poor in worldly goods. Maybe like this widow who gave all that she had in the temple. And the reward is that you will have your treasure in heaven, the priceless nature of the kingdom of heaven. And of course, we know what that is about. Jesus said, you know, the kingdom of heaven is, is sort of like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man finds it, he hides it again. And for joy then, he goes and he sells everything that he has. And then he goes and he buys the field. The kingdom of heaven is like a what? It's like a costly pearl. A merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he then goes and he sells everything that he has in order to buy it. Now, what Jesus is not saying here, once again, is he's not saying that we get our salvation by buying it, by earning it. But when we follow Jesus, the results are priceless. The treasure is eternal. He guards our treasure in heaven, and he reserves it for us. But not only that, while we are here, if we're really following him, we're set free. We're set free because we rely on him. We don't rely on the world. We rely on, on, on his provision. Even though we work hard in the, in the positions and the jobs that he gives us, he makes the provision. It frees us from the corrosive worry when we know that he will provide. He sets our hearts free so that we know that we have a heavenly treasure in heaven someday. You know, this is partly about the snare of wealth. The sad result is the man went away very sad because he was extremely rich. Well, actually, Luke leaves us in suspense here. It simply says that the man was very sad because he was extremely rich. Mark and Matthew make it very clear what he did. 
He didn't just sit there pondering and maybe he would change his mind. They say that he went away very sad, grieving. Why? Because his priority was on wealth and it was a barrier between him and God. Why? Because his focus was not singularly on God. He had double vision. His sight was blinded. His wealth prevented him to see Jesus for who he really was. Why? Because his burden encumbered him with worldly worries and things so that he could not follow Jesus. In fact, folks, his load was too wide. He had too much to carry. He couldn't walk along the narrow way and go through the small gate, you see. And Jesus' verdict was what? How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. He says this to the man. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. There's a principle here which is important for us all to know. Worldly riches make it extremely difficult to follow God. Jesus uses an example here of the largest animal that they knew in that day in that part of the world going through the very smallest opening imaginable, that of a needle. It's a hyperbole. It's an overstatement. I think he means it literally. Intentionally, he is drawing this ridiculous caricature of a camel trying to go through that tiny needle, sort of like Paul used to sew his tents together. There's some scholars that want to say, well, you know, the eye of a needle was a little tiny uh, door in the side of the wall of of the city, but there's no archaeological evidence or uh, manuscript evidence of that. Hmm. Some people, I think, try to explain away this crazy picture that Jesus has drawn. Some would say, well, what he was really talking about was the camelus, the rope, instead of the camelus, the camel. It's hard to put a rope through the eye of a needle, but once again, I think what they're doing is they're dismissing the picture that Jesus has drawn. It's impossible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, you see. This parallels what Jesus has said in the Sermon on the Mount. Broad is the way to destruction, but what? Narrow is the way, and small is the gate that leads to eternal life. You see, Jesus had already put wealth into this perspective. A man came up to him one day and he said, Master, would you tell my brother to share his inheritance with me? And Jesus looked at him and he said, what? Beware, be on guard against every form of greed, for you see, not even the abundance of things grants life. And life doesn't consist of possessions. And that's the setting then when Jesus told the story of the parable of the rich fool who had barns that were full and he was content and he was happy. He had everything that he needed to sustain and comfort him forever. And that night his soul would be required of him. And Jesus concludes by saying, you see, his problem was that he kept the treasure for himself, but he was not rich to God. You see, wealth can be a snare. But friends, wealth is not the only snare. Most people struggle with what Jesus was talking about here. Because the word there for wealth isn't just money. The word for wealth there is the business affairs of life. The busy things of life. The worldly matters that we consume ourselves with. He's not talking about just monetary wealth. He's talking about anything that consumes us and takes our eye off of Jesus. And Mark then applies this to all persons, not just to us. For in Mark's gospel, Jesus says, children, 
He's not just talking to the rich men. He's talking to his disciples. He says how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Not just for a rich man, but for most people. Why? Because for almost everybody at some stage in their life, no, for everybody at some stage in one's life, there's something that stands between them and the Lord. Whatever stands between us and God is an impediment to salvation. And whoever relies on works for salvation will not inherit eternal life. Then finally, who then can be saved? Jesus said it's hard, but Jesus did not say it's impossible. He said it is with great difficulty that a rich person can enter the kingdom of God. But it's impossible. It's impossible for most. And the word that he used here is it's powerless. You see, without faith... If we rely on our own strength and our own riches and our own works to enter the kingdom of God, it's impossible because Hebrews tells us it is impossible without faith to please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. You see, it's impossible if we don't have faith. With God, however, it is possible. And the word that He used here is with God, He is able. He was able, using the same word in Hebrews, he was able to raise Christ from the dead. Romans, Paul tells us that he is able to fulfill that which he has promised to us. And Paul tells Timothy he is able to keep, he has the power to keep that which we have committed unto him against that day. You see, with God, it is possible to be saved if we believe. Just three or four very quick applications. I think one thing that Jesus is doing today in modern terms is he's repudiating the prosperity gospel. Does that surprise you that I would say that? I don't think so. God promised Israel blessings and prosperity if they obeyed him. In other words, if you keep my laws, you're going to prosper because you see, my laws are designed for your good, for your health and your well-being. But riches in the Old Testament were never a sign necessarily of God's blessing. And poverty in the Old Testament was never necessarily a sign of disobedience. In fact, the Old Testament warns that we should not see riches as an automatic sign of God's blessing. And here, Jesus clearly warns us. The prosperity of riches can in fact be not a sign of God's blessing, but an impediment to salvation. If there is an indictment, of the prosperity gospel preached by some today, it is here in Luke's gospel. A second observation, rich persons can enter the kingdom of God. Do you know some rich people in the the New Testament that apparently entered the kingdom of God? How about Joseph of Arimathea? Yeah. How about Zacchaeus? Probably so. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus were probably pretty wealthy. Barnabas had a great deal and he gave to the early church. I think it's possible for rich people to enter the kingdom of God, but they must be willing to sell all they have and give to the poor. So does that mean, third observation, does that mean that we must literally go and sell all that we have and give to the poor? We should love our neighbor and we should help to take care of the poor and give to the poor that are always in our midst. But you know, if you stop and think about it, folks, the disciples did not go and sell everything. Peter said here at the next verse that we didn't read, we left everything. But you know what? Peter had not sold his boats in his home. He went back to them. Now, eventually, I think that he left them permanently. 
The disciples did not sell literally everything they had. Look at Zacchaeus in Luke the 19th chapter. Did Zacchaeus then sell everything that he had? No. In fact, he says, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. He didn't go sell everything that he had. It doesn't literally mean that we take all of our possessions and go sell them and liquidate everything and give it all to the poor and live in poverty like that. It means that we, we do what? It means this, finally, that we are sold out to Christ alone. He expects us to give up any crutch upon which we lean instead of Him. If the crutch is wealth, if what we lean on is power or intellect or pleasure or work or security or independence or self-esteem, whatever it is that stands between us, what is, whatever is dearer to our heart than Jesus, we must get rid of it. Whatever crutch we lean on, Jesus comes along and he is the divine prop knocker. And that's what he's done to the rich young ruler. We surrender all to him. We surrender all to his lordship. And we must get rid of anything that is dearer to our hearts than Jesus. And to do so permanently. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. And the closing verse makes it very clear. This is an echo of what Jesus said to the rich young ruler. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. Let's pray. Father, in this week when we do contemplate, during this holy week, the exuberance of the triumphal entry, the enthusiasm of the crowds that were clamoring for an earthly king, that before the week was over that they had turned their back on him and sold him out. He is the one, he is the redeemer then, who tells us to reverse that to sell all, to sell out, and to be completely committed to join Him along the way. Not just so that we might have eternal life as wonderful as that is, but that we might walk with Him along the way by the byways and the highways of life and have deep fellowship with You through Him, knowing that You make every provision, that many of the things that we depend on are simply crutches that are temporary. The goal that we have rusts and fades away. May we place our treasure in the person of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray.